Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. If you're just joining us, this week we are continuing our conversation with John Promomo, retired judge and author of the Rio Grande Sniper Killings, Caught in the Sights of a Drug Conspiracy, a new book just published by the History Press. John's direct experience with this case has given him unparalleled insight into its workings, and we are grateful to have had him as our guide. Let's tune back in. One of the aspects of the storytelling here, uh, which just comes right to the fore, is that that feeling of kind of the walls closing in, you know, the pressure that's on Jimmy from different sides. And you really sort of portray his predicament in such vivid terms. He he may well flip. We We don't know. He doesn't know. Pierce doesn't know. The other conspirators don't know. It's such he's such a wild card in this moment. Um, but of course, the stakes get a little higher when Rummel and Iski realize that they just can't take that chance, can they? They have to silence him. They they are very nervous. They uh, uh, they start following his case uh, and Burris's case very early on. Uh, from the moment that they get arrested, they start talking to each other. Rummel and Iski start asking each other whether or not, um, you know, are they going to cooperate? You know, uh, is there anything we can do? Uh, both of them are very nervous. They don't want to be uh, identified and they don't certainly don't want to go back to prison. And once um, uh, Burris and Jimmy are convicted and they get summoned before the grand jury, you know, their fears intensify. Uh, and, um, you know, they know that Jimmy and Burris have initially refused to appear before the grand jury, but then a federal judge holds them in contempt because they have no defense to their, uh, uh, for refusing to testify. And they go to jail and they're going to be held in contempt and remain in jail until they purge themselves of contempt by appearing before the grand jury. And uh, their, that their uh, time in jail only lasts about three weeks before both of them decide that, you know, the, enough of this, we're going to go ahead and, and talk to the federal grand jury and provide the information that Pierce wants. And once that happens and a, and a grand jury date is set, then Pierce and Rummel both know, I'm sorry, Rummel and Iski both know that um, they have to test, that they're going to have to do something. You know, they're going to either have to uh, bribe them or they're going to have to do something about them. And um, uh, Burris, uh, who's known Rummel a long time, assures his friend that he is, no matter what he's told Pierce, he's not going to divulge any in information. He's not going to testify into the grand jury. But nobody knows what Jimmy's going to do. So he becomes the center of their concern. You know, it... At first, it's interesting you write that uh, when their concern grows uncontainable, uh, they actually try to silence Jimmy themselves. But y you have this wonderful phrase in the book where you say, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get, give a direct quote here: "quote 
they have no clue what they are doing, unquote. <laughs> I just, you know, I, it was kind of like the opposite of Keystone Cops. It was kind of like Keystone Crooks, you know, here, who just, they take a pot shot at his car, but they miss, and they miss disastrously, and they just, it is so funny. Help us to see that. Help us to understand. Why do they have no idea what they're doing when they're trying to get rid of this guy? Well, both Rummel and Iski are... They are criminals when it comes to, uh, you know, drug involvement. But that neither one of them has been involved in any kind of violent crimes. I think that Iski has told Rummel that he has done violent things before, but I don't think even Rummel believes him. And, uh, um, and you know, I think he probably talked big when it came to uh, his violent history. And, you know, when when you're talking about doing what they're doing and trying to actually eliminate Jimmy as a potential uh, grand jury witness. Uh, what he did was take a shot at his car from several hundred yards, you know, <laughs> yeah. one moving car to another. So it's pretty obvious that that they they don't know what they're doing. It's, it's unplanned. It was just taken, you know, um, in the moment. And, uh, uh, you know, I think Rummel realized that you know, that, that they're going to have to get some professional help if they're really serious about uh, uh, eliminating Jimmy. And it's funny because this sort of keystone crookery, you know, their unprofessionalism extends to this allegedly professional hitman when I just loved this sequence in your book where they're trying to persuade him, you know, we, we promise we'll pay you. We, we got to come up with the money somehow. We're going to sell a truck and we're going to do all this other stuff. But they didn't even have enough money to pay for his own flight down from Austin. He had to pay. Pay, pay his airfare himself and you just it makes you wonder i mean what was this guy thinking as he's as he's you know talking to them like do these guys have any idea what they're doing well uh, walker himself was a big talker too uh you know he bragged about being uh an enforcer for drug dealers and having shot people uh before uh, uh not just in vietnam uh and uh and as you, you know, you read the, uh, the book and, and as I read the transcript, you can see that he's uh, just as unprofessional uh, in his efforts at, at being an assassin uh, as, as they were in uh, maybe a little bit better, but uh, he was very unprofessional as well. When it came to, um, uh, he was talking on the phone to Rummel about going down to McAllen. He asked if there was anything he needed and what he was talking about was whether or not they needed a weapon. And Rummel had the weapon, you know, but uh, uh, Walker shows up with a handful of bullets, you know, none of which fit any of the weapons that they had. It was very, it was just very unprofessional. I think Walker wanted to Rummel to believe that he was a, a professional assassin, but uh, it, it was probably only to justify the fee. And Walker was so desperate for the money he was willing to believe that they would pay him $10,000, even though there was, he got no money up front and there was really no proof that these guys had any money at all to pay him. Right. And whatever fee is, is, you know, allegedly 
uh, going to come his way is tied up in some beat up old rusty truck, you know, and you're just thinking this is, this is a laugh here. And, you know, I laugh, I, I, I think it's important for us to, you know, find the levity where we can, but of course this was actually a terrible crime and it was a senseless murder. And, you know, I want to make sure that, um, any levity that I do find, you know, is of course, uh, situated in in the context of the gravity of the situation, I, I wanted to ask you, John. There's this kind of interesting moment where, before the shooting itself, uh, how did Rummel and Iski know, and Burris? How did they know that Jimmy was going to be at Pepe's that particular night? Um, it it was not. Maybe I missed something as I was reading, but it was not entirely. Uh, sort of clear to me how they were able to keep tabs on him. Um, and I was curious, was it uh, customary of Jimmy based on your understanding uh, of, of uh, the sequence there? Was it sort of customary of him just to kind of frequent his local haunts or how, I mean, how, how did everybody come to be at Pepe's that particular night? Burris, who, who was with Jimmy and you would have thought would have been just as concerned about his own life as Jimmy might've been was in, was in McAllen and was actually looking for him, uh, on behalf of Rummel and Iski and, uh, another conspirator, Sonny Stotler, uh, uh, was also in McAllen. And so, uh, according to Rummel and, and I point this out in the book and I think it's important is that, uh, According to Rummel's testimony, all four of them, Rummel, Iski, Stotler, and Burris, were all part of the murder conspiracy, but all that testimony comes from Rummel. There is, there's no other evidence that these other three individuals, Iski, Stotler, and Burris, were part of the murder conspiracy. The only evidence that they were part of the murder conspiracy is, is it's, it's only from Rummel. So, and I point that out in the introduction of the book. Uh, they were never charged and uh, certainly were never convicted of anything to do with the murder conspiracy, only, only uh, the, uh, the drug conspiracy. But Stotler and Burris were looking for Jimmy and had been looking uh, for Jimmy. And somehow Burris or Stotler tracked him down to, to uh, Pepe's on the day on July 3rd, on the evening of July 13th. Now, exactly how they did that, I do not know. The transcript did not reveal that information. Whether or not um, Burris knew that it was a hangout of Jimmy's and that he just went out there and looked for him, whether or not um, they got some other information, made some calls, uh, I don't really know. I just know that, that Rummel testified that, um, that um, either Burris or Stotler uh, called him and told him that, that Jimmy was at uh, Pepe's on um, July 13th. So describe just briefly the shooting uh, for us. It was a very chaotic scene to begin with, and it only got more chaotic uh, when the gunshot rang out. Jimmy and um, had been there for a long time. He'd been there probably since about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Charlotte and Kevin had also been there from about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And it was probably around six or so that that um, that uh, Rummel and uh, Walker showed up, and uh, they kept waiting. You know, uh, Walker Rummel pointed out Jimmy from the parking lot so that Walker knew who Jimmy was. 
uh, Walker decided to go in the bar, get a close look at, at uh, Jimmy, sat down at a table, uh, watched him. Jimmy had no idea this guy was, uh, Walker was over there looking at him and with the intent that he was going to go out to the uh, truck, pull out a rifle and, and try to kill him. And uh, after a while, Walker went back to the pickup truck uh, in the parking lot, you know, and they were trying to figure out exactly how they were going to do this. Uh, they didn't have a plan. Walker didn't really have a plan. Walker, uh, Rummel said, well, you know, he's the assassin. I'm leaving this up to him. And hours went by and, and Rummel's getting more impatient. Walker's getting a little impatient. You know, people are beginning to leave to go home. It's Sunday. Uh, a lot of people have to work the next day, uh, but Jimmy doesn't leave. So, you know, they, uh, they're hoping that Jimmy's going to leave and that they can just follow him or that they can uh, maybe shoot him when he's getting near his car or something uh, of that nature. And, uh, but Jimmy doesn't leave. Uh, finally, it's about quarter to midnight and there's only, uh, the bar closes at midnight and there are probably only about 30 people left. And um, uh, uh, Charlotte's seated at the, at the bar. Kevin is leaning on the bar because of his cerebral palsy. He needs, to, he needs the support of the bar. At the, uh, uh, and when I say the bar, I'm talking about the actual physical structure of the bar. And, the, uh, and then Jimmy is standing very close to them. Uh, I don't think that he's engaged in conversation with them. He's just standing with a, a young woman near where they are. And uh, finally, uh, you know, it's only about a quarter to 12, about they're going to, the bar is going to close and all they have to do is wait a few more minutes and Jimmy has to leave. But for some reason, Walker just couldn't wait any longer. He told Rummel to start the truck and uh, Rummel uh, started the truck. Walker reached under the seat, pulled out a 30-30 rifle with a scope that Rummel had brought down to the valley. That belonged, the rifle belonged to Rummel. He hung out the passenger window. Walker hung out the passenger window, aimed it at Jimmy. At the very moment that he fired the shot, the bartender, who was one of the owners of Pepe's, told something or said something funny to Charlotte. And Charlotte threw her head back laughing. At the very second she threw her head back laughing, uh, Walker fired the shot. The bullet grazed the back of her head and uh, it, it split into two pieces. Both pieces uh, entered Kevin's neck and um, she hit the concrete floor and he uh, went down. Uh, he died almost immediately and she died about an hour later at the hospital. But it's, it's, it's safe to assume that uh, had she not just laughed and, and thrown her head back into the path of the bullet, that the, the, uh, Jimmy might have died, but the tragedy uh, would, have been, would have been different. You know, it is remarkable, John, that throughout your account, you have these little tiny, the most minute variations of fate which change the entire course of the story from the jogger who happens to see the plane flying overhead thinks that you know something's funny and calls it in to the authorities and then they get um you know the the tracking going on the on the smuggling operation to the this little moment where 
you know, the bartender says something funny and Charlotte laughs and that changes her life, you know, forever. It's just these little tiny twists which have such profound implications. That must have really struck you as you were writing this book. Yeah, those things were very unusual. Um, it was, it, it just, it, it made it sadder for me. I mean, I, knowing uh, how how devastated both Charlotte's family and um, uh, how Keith Fraze, Kevin's brother, you know, I, I had the privilege of sitting down with him and talking to him and communicating with him several times. And it's just the, the tragedy, the family tragedy is just, it just, it's just so terrible that it's, uh, it, you know, I just think about how something so small made such a, a difference in the lives of so many people. It's, uh, it's just incredible. I mean, uh, I'm just, it's so sad. It is. It is indeed. There's one bright spot here, I suppose, amid the tragedy, which is the actions of the barman, uh, which you point out probably saved uh, a few more lives. I mean, he was a veteran himself, and he recognized that something had just happened, which was way beyond an accident. This was this was totally out of the ordinary. And you write that he called for sort of everybody to get down, and interestingly, to stay down, right, in case there was another shot. Was that was that the dynamic here? I believe he did. I believe uh, Luis Tierina, the uh, one of the owners of Pepe's, knew that uh, he knew from his army experience that uh, it was a, a a rifle shot, and it was it sounded very loud to people who were under the uh, the roof at the uh, in Pepe's, and uh, they they scattered. The, they went down, uh, and uh, they stayed down until they they could hear a tire the tires of a car. Um, speeding away, and once they were sure that no one was going to fire again, it's only then did they come out from their uh, protection to see exactly what had happened. That is some really quick thinking and uh, really, really very remarkable in the moment. Um, so kudos to him. Now, in this moment, the you write that the stakes of this case have suddenly and permanently changed and that they have gotten so much greater, so much higher uh, than they were up until this point. Now, Jimmy goes into protection. He goes into hiding under under the care of uh, which authority actually is is kind of uh, over him at this point. Is it the assistant U.S. attorney's office? Is it Texas public safety? A, a federal law enforcement officer, either it was probably not uh, the DEA. It could have been a, a local federal law enforcement officer that was uh, uh, asked to take uh, to take Jimmy home and to be sure he was safe. I believe that uh, in reading one of the reports that uh, they stayed at his home to be sure that uh, everything was safe inside before uh, they left him. Uh, uh, but they, uh, the, uh, the law enforcement officer from the Loop 360 case would not have been in the vicinity at the time, but he did eventually take Jimmy uh, uh, drug enforcement agent uh, Richard Brazil did take Jimmy and keep him in an unknown location until his grand jury testimony. Uh, he did take him after that night and put him in a safe place. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not 
anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. this amazing paragraph on uh, page 56 of your book. And I was wondering if uh, it, it sort of just sets the, it helps us to see just how everything is different as a result of this particular shooting incident. Um, would you just read that for us? It's the paragraph that starts uh, less than 30 days. Less than 30 days after the shooting of Charlotte and Kevin, Jimmy appeared before the federal grand jury in Austin and implicated Rummel. Iskey, Stotler, Cervantes, and Crisp as the remaining members of the Loop 360 deal conspiracy. Pierce recognized the courage it took for Jimmy to testify. He could have chosen to remain silent and go back to jail under the contempt order rather than risk being killed. No one would have blamed him. Whether he testified because of the attempt on his life or despite it, Jimmy gave Pierce the information he needed to prosecute the other Loop 360 deal participants. In October 1981, at Pierce's request, Jimmy's sentence was reduced from four to two years to account for his cooperation. Burris also testified before the grand jury. The hunters now became the hunted. It gave me a little shiver as I read that. <laughs> that really is, uh, it's, such an, it's such a fascinating account. And, and you write shortly thereafter that uh, it's it take it's going to take us a little while um, with indictments with gathering evidence and with uh, bringing formal charges before everybody can appear in your courtroom but the last and or excuse me the next domino the, uh, the most important domino uh, in, in the sequence here is, to fall is David Iskey and with the shooting with the loss of innocent life uh, and with the recognition that everything is spiraling out of control for uh, the conspirators, David Iskey becomes the focus of your account in a way that, I don't know, I, as I was reading it, I was just sort of thinking, I have no idea what he's going to do. He he is getting boxed in step by step, right? And he's feeling the pressure in a way that Jimmy had just a chapter or two earlier, but with so much more gravitas upon him. So can you help us to, to understand what the delicacy of Iskey's position after the shooting and after uh, Jimmy's testimony? Iskey's situation was, was very unique for several reasons, especially in light of Rummel's testimony at trial. If, um, if, if Rummel is to be believed that Iskey was part of the murder conspiracy, uh, you wouldn't think that Iskey would say anything to anybody uh, about what happened in the Valley. But um, after Jimmy testified before the grand jury and identified Iskey and the others as part of the Loop 360 deal, uh, Iskey was charged and he was arrested. 
and he knew this was probably a couple of months after um, uh, the uh, uh, the killings in uh, in in the valley, and he knew that um, if he was going to um, get out from under this Loop 360 deal, he was going to need to provide Pierce with some valuable information. Uh, and he knew that uh, the most valuable information he could provide is something about the the killings of Charlotte and Kevin. Uh, he was he was had been involved in the criminal justice system, and he was uh, very uh, sophisticated when it came to knowing that uh, that kind of information would help him deal with Pierce in getting out from under that Loop 360 deal. And uh, usually it's very, very unusual for a defendant who is unrepresented to ask when he has just been arrested, I want to talk to the prosecutor. Uh, I don't know that I, I can, I don't know that I can remember that happening in the 29 years that I was a United States magistrate judge. Wow. It just does not happen. I mean, if somebody's represented, you know, they, then they go through their lawyer, but it is extremely rare that it's, that would happen, that a defendant is unrepresented, says, I want to talk to the prosecutor and I want to talk to him now, you know, without a lawyer. Uh, and he did that. And when he talked to Pierce, he says, I know who killed those people and I can get him for you. And when, and not at that point, they, you know, people had investigated uh, the, the murder, but no one had any leads about who the murderer was. And uh, the uh, Jimmy, you know, figured they were after him, but he did not know who the killers were. And uh, when Iskey told him that, uh, was able to say, look, Rummel was the guy that hired the killer, um, Pierce said, okay, you know, that's good information. And if that information pans out, then I will dismiss the Loop 360 uh, conspiracy charges against you. And uh, with that information, Iski uh, agreed to wear uh, a wire a transmitter, and he recorded a conversation with Rummel uh, in which Rummel implicated himself in the murder conspiracy. You know, he went to Rummel's house uh, on the pretext of uh, buying some marijuana, and um, Rummel had absolutely no idea that Iski had now turned government informant and uh, completely implicated himself in the murder conspiracy. And once that information was known to, to Pierce, then uh, Iski had basically uh, gotten out from under the Loop 360 deal conspiracy. It was just, uh, the, it's interesting thing is that, you know, the one, then they got to trial, uh, Rummel implicated Iski in the murder conspiracy. So you have, uh, you have the uh, uh, Iski who basically gave Rummel to Pierce and Rummel then saying, hey, I, you know, I'm not sure why he's doing this, but Iskey was part of the murder conspiracy too. But there was no other evidence, as I pointed out earlier, that Iskey was part of the murder conspiracy other than from Boyce Rummel. No honor among thieves and no honor among smugglers and no honor among murderers. <laughs> no, not when it came to staying out of prison. That it really is, it really is something. I can only imagine what that particular encounter between Iski and Rummel must have been like when Iski's wired up, you know. And he, he, what's interesting to me about your account, John, is that he, he goes in there and he knows that he has to get enough information or the right kind of information for Pierce. 
otherwise, he's not making it out of this either way. I mean, it's kind of the definition of rock and a hard place, isn't it? It, it, it was very, very unusual. Uh, I'm sure Pierce was surprised to hear from him. Uh, they knew each other from past drug cases. So, you know, he knew to ask for Pierce. And he also knew that um, talking to the DEA agent, uh, Dick Brazil, uh, was not going to get him what he wanted. The DE agent could not get him uh, a deal on the Loop 360 case. So uh, he immediately, uh, uh, after he was arrested, I think Dick Brazil actually arrested him. He said, I want to talk to Pierce uh, because I can uh, tell him, some, give him some valuable information. And uh, Pierce went to talk to him and it, and it worked out for Iski. I have heard y'all folks down in South Texas like to gamble, but this was a new form of it to me. <laughs> <laughs> this this was highly unusual, but it it turned out to be a big uh, uh, stepping stone in the uh, investigation that ultimately led to the identification and prosecution of Lloyd Chris Walker. We're going to wrap it up here in just a moment with uh, Rummel's indictment um, and the the return to the courtroom where you meet everybody. But just for the legal eagles uh, out there among us, I know we have some folks uh, with that kind of expertise among our listenership. Will you describe this really innovative use of the uh, U.S. Code uh, Title, Title 18, Section 241, you write, uh, you said that there was a truly novel means of prosecution here to get Rummel that had not uh, typically been used in the past. Can you just unpack that for us? Well, it was a, um, back in 1982, um, uh, uh, or basically the crime was committed in 1980, so there had to be a crime in the on the federal books at that time um, uh, to prosecute uh, Rummel and eventually Walker for attempting to kill a federal grand jury witness. And there was no federal statute that prohibited uh, or that uh, concerned the attempt to kill a federal grand jury witness. There, of course, is now. So at the time, um, uh, Pierce and John Murphy uh, decided on 18 U.S.C. Section 241, which was uh, uh, attempting to intimidate somebody in the exercise of a constitutional right. And the constitutional right at issue was um, Jimmy's right to testify before a federal grand jury. And by attempting to kill him, uh, the, the argument was that they were uh, uh, intimidating him or attempting to prevent him from exercising that right. Uh, and my first thought was, and, I, and the thought of the defense at one point was, well, you know, he wasn't trying to, he wasn't testifying voluntarily. You know, they were forcing him to testify. And uh, that argument was actually made before the Court of Appeals uh, at one point, and the Court of Appeals rejected that argument. It, it, it upheld the use of Section 241 and held that by attempting to kill Jimmy, they were intimidating him and threatening him in his uh, desire to testify before the federal grand jury. So it was a novel use of that statute. And they, in fact, had to, uh, Pierce and Murphy had to uh, seek permission from the Department of Justice in Washington to use the statute for the prosecution in this case. Uh, and there were several DOJ attorneys who were reluctant to, to use it for that purpose because it was primarily a civil rights statute uh, that was enacted during the Ku Klux Klan era, and uh, they were a little reluctant 
to use it for this purpose, but they eventually relented, and uh, that was the statute that uh, both Rummel and eventually Walker were uh, prosecuted under. Is that common for a state prosecutor to have to go to Washington and say, hey, we've got this tool in the toolkit, can we use it? Well, they're, they're both federal prosecutors, but I think it's, 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 it is a little, uh, I don't think that they uh, would normally have to go to the DOJ for permission to use, uh, permission to prosecute someone, but there are situations uh, where either the facts are unusual uh, that they might have to seek DOJ permission, but I think it's I think being able to use a statute like they used the statute in this case, I think that's very unusual uh, that the the local federal prosecutors had to seek DOJ permission uh, to prosecute under this particular statute or a particular statute. Well, I think we what we can definitely say is um, you know coming to a law school moot court. Uh, classroom near you, right? Sometimes. <laughs> That's fascinating. That really is um, very, uh, very compelling for those of us who like the technicalities. That's, that's, that's great. Thank you for that. So in November 1980, Rummel is indicted. He's booked. He pleads guilty. Um, and very shortly thereafter, Walker, the trigger man, is found in New Mexico. Um, and he has to be extradited, as you write in the book. And the trial begins in June 1982, uh, which is where you meet all of these individuals uh, for the first time uh, in your capacity as briefing attorney. Uh, we've come full circle to that to that moment. Can you just describe for us, uh, of course, 40 years ago, you had no idea that you would be writing a book about this particular case. You, you were just there in your capacity. But can you just describe for us the very beginning, your, your memories of the very beginning of the trial or kind of the, uh, your memories of, of Judge Garcia, kind of just take us to that moment when it all, when this case all uh, got started and found you? When I started as a lawyer, I started practicing in, in state court. So um, I, I eventually became a briefing attorney in federal court for Judge Garcia about three years after I uh, became an attorney. And so it was, I was always extremely impressed by federal court. It's, it's, uh, it was, it just seemed to me a very um, impressive, sophisticated uh, court and court proceedings. Uh, it, Judge Garcia is one of the most unique individuals uh, and unique judges uh, that uh, anyone would, could ever hope to meet. He uh, was a mentor to me, to many other people, and many other people who also became judges. Uh, and he was, uh, he was a very, uh, an ideal person uh, for this case. Um, he's extremely patient. Uh, uh, tremendous judicial temperament. Uh, uh, I learned so many things from him that uh, uh, I would later use in, in my own capacity as a judge. Uh, and um, when this case started, I just remember that it, the impact it had on me, because as I, as I mentioned, there are so few cases in federal court that involve violence. Uh, we involve so many drug cases. We have immigration cases. We have lots and lots of white collar crime cases, but it's very, very rare that we have cases involving violence. And I, I remember Charlotte's parents being there. Uh, 
her mother and father and just how very, very sad it was uh, that her, you know, her mother and father would sit in the back of the courtroom every day and, and her mother would testify. And it's just, it's just, it was so very sad. I mean, she testified and it was in the transcript how Pierce, you know, put her on the witness stand to testify about Charlotte and having taken the trip to the Valley. And Pierce asked her how many children they have. She, and she said, she said, we have six. He says, or says, we have five. He says, before we said before, you know, Charlotte's death, we had six. And it was just like, oh, I mean, it's just, the impact it had, you know, on, on me and I'm sure on the jury and on everyone else in the courtroom. And it was just a very, very sad time. And, and the deaths of Charlotte and Kevin just had a, an impact on me and it made an impression on me that lasted throughout my legal career. Uh, I was probably about 30 years old at the time and it, uh, or 29, and it was something that stayed with me forever and uh, was one of the reasons I uh, decided to write this book. Well, it's a remarkable story, and we're grateful to you for bringing it to light. We are not going to spoil what happens at the trial for our listeners. For that, they are going to have to go and check out the book uh, themselves. But it is the the last half of the book is just as compelling as the first half. I can absolutely uh, recommend recommend it on those terms. Now. For those who do want to learn more about you or uh, find a copy of the book, where can they do that? Uh, I have a website, www.jwpromomo.com. Um, it has information about my three books, or you can get um, this book, The Rio Grande Sniper Killings, at uh, Amazon or Barnes Noble. Well, John, uh, if I may, your honor, we are so grateful to you for taking the time. Uh, for us, you know, last week we had the discussion of a judge gone bad, and I can't tell you how good it feels to be in conversation <laughs> with one of the good guys. So thank you for this. Certainly glad to be here and glad to talk about it. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been John Promomo, author of The Rio Grande Sniper Killings, Caught in the Sights of a Drug Conspiracy, published this month by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back soon with more new releases. Stay tuned. Thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. 
She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.